but for some reason I have not yet become a fish. I have apparently dropped off any number of times and I am still the box man I was. On reflection, a fake fish and a box man don't seem conspicuously different. The fake me becomes something not at all myself when I put on the box. Perhaps I, who have been immunized against being something fake, no longer possess the capability of having the dream of a fish. No matter how many times boxmen keep awakening from their dreams, they apparently end up being only the boxmen they always were. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We're coming at you from inside a box. John Cribbs and Chris Funderburg. How's everybody doing? Chris, how are you? Newly minted boxman Chris Funderburg. I have a little visor with vinyl over it, a little viewing window that when leaned forward will open by itself. I have various hooks to hold my things on, a radio, a small shelf, a piece of plastic that I put in my lap in order to write. I also have a knife to sharpen my pencil. I have some felt tip pens, which are no good because they get blotted out and blurry. And I write on the side of the box when I need, sometimes for what seems like only two hours, but apparently was 54. John, today... We are talking about, I'm going to go ahead and say, this novel, which I had never read before, is now one of my 10 favorite novels. Kobo wow. Abe's Boxman. Yes. Um, I, That's amazing. It's not even my favorite Kobo Abe, but I do love it. I do love this book. This ahead. is the only one I've read. This is the only one I've read of him. I we We should... We should, there's a few things that I think we've, we've sort of got to address at the beginning of this episode. One is like the Teshigahara issue. The second one is describing what the fuck this book is. But I hadn't read any of his work. The other thing I think that in keeping with our long tradition of mispronouncing names, we should just call him Kaboabe, right? Are you okay with that? <laughs> it is pronounced Abe. I did look it up. Yes, it's Kobo Abe, but Kaboabe, my favorite Kaboabe. Um, we don't have to keep referring to the book as Hako Atoko if you don't want to. I will call it. Sounds like hot taco to me. The box man. Zweet a poopy doo pop. That's what it is. That's every time I say the title. Every single I'm time. I'm a box man. Stuck in my head. Let's get that title. John, what, how are we going to dig into this? How are we going to delve into this? I say that we should just do our traditional at the beginning right here do our aperitif pairing with every every book we talk about. We do an aperitif and a dessert pairing, something for you to ingest an artwork, a film, a book, piece of music, a painting before you read the book, and then something afterwards to take you out of it as a dessert pairing. And I think we should just dive into that first uh, before we dig into the rest of this and sort of get into who Kobo Abe was where people might know him from, what his legacy is, and then talk about the book itself. So, John... As long as we can get into it, this box is getting really uncomfortable. Honestly, I don't know how a man could live in a box. No, I love this box. I've been convinced that I should be living in a box. It, it makes it sound like getting out of the box and showering is the worst thing to ever happen to you, <laughs> to live inside <laughs> the true. box. Uh, you know, your comments, though, make me feel like you're going to shoot me with an air rifle, John. I think you haven't accepted yet that your, you know, destiny is to become a box man. I think you're going to shoot me because I'm the box man. I just haven't found the right box yet. I think that that's the problem for everybody in their voyage into becoming a box man. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot. Look, I think that paralysis of the heart's sense of direction is the box man's chronic complaint. 
I think that's the problem of being a box man. And it sounds like you have paralysis of the heart sense of direction right now. What kind of box? Who cares, John? What's my <laughs> life going to be? It doesn't matter. Get in the box. Live in the box like a box man. John, what is your aperitif pairing? My aperitif pairing is uh, an artwork. An artwork by Walid Beshti. I honestly can't remember if it had a title, but the gimmick was that he shipped glass boxes and FedEx boxes to the gallery. And of course they would be horribly damaged and cracked when they arrived. And then he displayed those boxes and it <laughs> kind of came out of an idea that he had about, I'm just going to read his artist from his artist statement here where he says, uh, FedEx of course has the, the copyright designating the design of each FedEx box, but there's also the corporate ownership over that very shape. And he wanted to kind of explore the idea of shapes having ownership of some kind that yeah. in our world boxes have this very specific purpose that is completely apersonal. And then when he removes the glass box, it's something that has been unhoused from another entity as if its skin had been shed from it. Uh, and he, again, I can't remember if he had a very specific title for this, but it looked really incredible. These glass boxes, when they came out damaged and were placed upon the FedEx box that had been, you know, traveled across the country it was a very interesting sort of thematic art piece. So that would be what I would say. I'm going to put that out as the aperitif one should check out before reading this unique book. That, that sounds very good. And it sounds like something that would be at home at up near you at Dia Beacon. Uh, that, that I can imagine seeing that kind of, yeah, that kind I, of installation. I should, that, I should put out there. I had a hard time thinking of good pairings with this unique book. So uh, that that came from Jordana Kalman, my wife. You know, I asked her about it, and that was her suggestion. But you I did, thought it was you a great didn't suggestion. take my suggestion of dreams of a rare bit fiend. That was my suggestion, John, and you blew it off. I I have something a little more obvious, but that I think is really perfect. I think if you're going to read this book, what you do is you go to your record player, you get out a record, you put it on, and you put on Nostalgia by the great Toru Takamitsu who is the film composer, who is most famous for having done the score for Akira Kurosawa's Ran, is probably his most famous score. But he also did the scores for all four of the features that uh, Hiroshi Teshigahara made from the books of Kobo Abe, Man Without a Map, Woman in the Dunes, Face of Another, and Pitfall. And he is a very uh, excellent interesting avant-garde uh, experimental composer in his own right uh, invented different ways of uh, creating sheet music rather than the standard ABCD uh, EFG that you're used to seeing the do re mi fa so la ti do sort of based sheet music uh, created different ways of thinking about sound and soundscapes and I think if you put on nostalgia and read Boxman with nostalgia playing it is a wonderful companion piece it's a very a sort of rain and windswept evoking piece of music. Uh, it's both both gentle and dreamy, but rough and harsh. And I think that it's a very good pairing with this book. It's very easy to imagine uh, uh, this this music accompanying if Teshi Gudhara had finally made Boxman into a movie, this music accompanying it. And it's also just uh, excellent, excellent music. Um, so to dive in, the first thing uh, I feel like we need to get out of the way and that I wanted to say to you up front is um, 
the reason I hadn't read any Kobo Abe until now was he's so heavily associated, if you're a cinephile like me, with Teshigahara, right? With uh, with the films of Teshigahara, particularly Woman in the Dunes. Sort of if you know Kobo Abe uh, as, a, as a film uh, aficionado, you probably know him as the guy who wrote Face and Another and Women in the Dunes. And I was under the false impression, I thought it was a, a Kurosawa does Ed McBain situation. I thought it was a Truffaut does David Goodis situation where an interesting filmmaker had imposed his vision on a more or less disregardable genre novelist. Um, that's That's with Woman in the Dunes, I don't know why I thought that, but certainly with Man Without a Map and Face of Another and Pitfall, those are almost genre crime stories in a pretty basic way that you can imagine, um, you know, getting getting the, you know, Kurosawa making high and low out of, out of Ed McBain, just sort of running roughshod over the source material. I mean, it should have been a tip off that he adapted him so many times. But what I wanted to say is, is that I don't want to talk about Teshigahara at all. I want to get it out of the way here at the beginning and talk about Good. Abe as his own artist and his own thing and just sort of acknowledge that connection and just move on from it. And just sort of, I think part of the reason I um, overlooked Abe is to me, Teshigahara is one of the, the, the sort of titans of 60s art house cinema. I don't know how he's thought of in the public imagination, but I think of him as like, yeah, he's obviously as good as Bergman, Fellini, Truffaut, the Tarkovsky, he's on that level, obviously, is my relationship to him. And he's such an interesting artist, such an amazing artist, uh, that he, I think, in my mind, was overshadowing Abe so much. But I, this book is not just better than any of Teshigahara's movies. It's way better than any of Teshigahara's movies. And I say that as somebody who just said Teshigahara is on the level of Truffaut. You know, I am not taking Teshigahara lightly to say this is, this is just an order of magnitude of greatness. I, I, think, I think Abe, to me, when I read it, really is on the level of Kafka, Dostoevsky, that level of heavy hitter, you know? Oh, I absolutely agree. I think he's a major voice. I think it's interesting that he always said, you know, he does not write Japanese literature, that there's nothing really in his books that say something about Japanese society or really kind of pigeonhole him to one specific country. It's something that, you know, there's nothing in the box man specifically, I think, that says this is this is Tokyo when he's calling it, you know, the city of tea or anything like yeah. that. I, I think that he has a universal voice and has books like the box man which you couldn't make into a film right i mean you can't yeah. how would you how would you do this you could it, it could even be interesting but it just it wouldn't be what this book is yeah this book is what this book is it's funny you mentioned the japanese influences thing i was just reading an interview with him because now i want to know everything about him now he's like my favorite author i didn't i didn't know who he was a month ago and now he's my favorite but in the interview, they asked what what um, Japanese authors uh, authors he had been influenced by, an artist, and he said not a single one was yeah. his answer. That's how much. And he was he was somebody he grew up in Manchuria. He was born in Tokyo, but grew up in Manchuria and became very disillusioned with Japan. 
during the World War II era. Uh, he actually was a studied to be a doctor during World War II. And the reason he had done that was to be a draft dodger. And he said, all of my friends who went into the humanities like I wanted to were killed during World War II, right? So, and doctors weren't required to become soldiers. They could, they could defer. And he was a terrible doctor, apparently. He studied gynecology, which reading this book, it's like, oh, fucking course he did. This guy is a weirdo pervert, which is one of the things I love about him. Uh, but he never had any intention of studying medicine, never, never became a doctor never did anything with it and immediately went into the arts as soon as he was was done and the World War II was over. But he very aggressively rejected Japan. And actually the name Kobo uh, for his last name is a, a bit of a um, Cantoneseification of his real last name. He wanted to make it sound more Chinese and less Japanese is why he changed it. And he's somebody who talks a lot about he feels much more connected to, to Kafka, Lewis Carroll, Edgar Allan Poe. Those are the kind of authors that he's really connected to as a writer. Um, and you can feel it. I think the obvious touchstone for his work is Kafka. Although I, I like this book as much as I like anything by Kafka and I fucking love Kafka, you know, which is, uh, I love Kafka too. I'll say the main difference, especially with this book. I always think of Kafka's heroes being afraid of becoming invisible, of yeah. not being seen anymore, that they become absorbed in the bureaucracy or the society. Joseph K. or the hunger artist. Nobody wants to come and see the hunger artist anymore. They want to come and see uh, the new beautiful tiger. There's a real fear of being completely absorbed into the world that his characters are ter terrified of. And the Boxman, as we know, is very specifically about the wish to not be seen in the world, the, the idea of achieving perfect invisibility in plain sight, the kind of motive behind becoming a box man being that, you know, it's the shell that you can put it over yourself and you become part of the street. You're just there, you know, people do not notice you, they do not look at you, but you see everything. You now have the power because you see everything and everyone and nobody sees you. So for me, that's a huge difference in the themes of a lot of Abe's books compared to someone like, like Kafka. Yeah. Also, Kafka is all about people's uh, being compelled to a sense of culpability and the way in which people uh, demand their own judgment and judge themselves, right? That they sort of want, they want to be put on trial. They're, they're compelled to put themselves on trial, right? And this book is about dodging judgment of any kind. It's about the exact opposite impulse of to not even be a, a person, to be beyond judgment in your behavior, to be sort of beyond uh, any kind of, you know, the judge sits and looks at you and considers you. This is somebody who is not looked at and considered. There's no judgment possible because you're no longer a person. Um, and I do, I do think that the other, the other hard question of this is that we have to do right at the beginning because this book is so uh, abstract and intellectual john what is this book about i will tell you what i think are the only verifiable actions that happen in this book you don't believe that faked affidavit do you <laughs> it's nothing to do with the affidavit this is what it has this is what i can verify as probably actually happening within the narrative of the book a homeless man is on a bridge under a box and a woman wants to give him some money because she feels bad for him. 
that is literally all you can confirm i think actually happens in this book I everything think, else i think you can't even confirm that she wants to get a money i think you confirm that he sees a woman's legs that's what i think <laughs> you can confirm and they're near and they're near a soy sauce factory okay that's... close good enough so a man in a box sees a woman's legs that's all that's verifiable in this book it is an amazing whirlpool of narrative tricks where it goes from first person to second person it goes from past to present it uses all these amazing writer skills to make you not understand for a second exactly what's going on where literally you think you're you're hearing from one character but it's actually supposed to be another person who's in the room you don't know if this person is just all these personas are this one person he manages to within this sometimes with the same sentence or the same paragraph switch perspective in a way that is I unequivocal unequiv- I've never seen perspective switched so easily and so fluid looking for flu yeah satisfyingly confusingly you know yes and fluid yeah but yeah it's, it's effortless yeah and it's not it's not confusing in the sense of unintelligible it's no. confusing in the sense of constantly maneuvering you around through connections to make you reconsider what you assumed to begin with. And I think that's one of the things that's really brilliant about it is that it, it constantly puts an idea in your head and then slowly shows you ways in which that idea could be untrue, you know? Mm-hmm. And in a way that's very, uh, that's very slick. So the basic story is... Um, it's also all different sections too. Unlike a lot of novels, it resolves the question of these words you're reading, right? On the page in the novel, who were they written by and where were they written? You know, a lot of novels don't even bother with that question. And so the idea is he's writing in notebooks, he's writing on the wall of the box. There's an affidavit that another character has made verifying the truth, or maybe the same character, perhaps the same character later on of what happened, right? You're under the and, impression that you're reading memoirs from inside the box that have been scrawling inside, but then you don't even know that he's not reading from a, another scrawling on the box that's been done by somebody else at some point in time. Yes. has nothing to do with him at all. And there's all kinds of things like sentences are printed upside down and you have to turn the book upside down to read them. There's photographs throughout with little like epigrams and epigraphs written under the photographs, almost like poetic little things that sort of tie into what's going on. Uh, And in fact, the first paragraph in the book is presented as a kind of piece of evidence. And you, this, this thing does, it's amazing because it does feel like a detective story that wanders away from detective stories. It's like man with a map, uh, man without a map in that, in that sense where it's, it feels like you're in for a real regular detective story and then you wander completely off into a different universe. But it yeah, gets you in is, that headspace. Yeah, this is something that he had kind of walked away from himself as he went further down his career because uh, man with the, the ruined map, which is the book is called, yes. is a kind of classic detective story about trying to find a lost husband and then that was followed by this, the box man, where there, there's possibly a murder, there's possibly a missing person, and there's a crime that seems it's going to be committed, but you could not verify any of those. And that led to, was my personal favorite, uh, box man is seven, 1973, and secret rendezvous is 1977. Secret rendezvous, for anyone who's seen uh, Larry Cohen's The Ambulance, has a similar opening where 
a man's wife is taken away by ambulance for no reason. And then he goes to the hospital to try to find her and it essentially becomes a pick of rest set inside this hospital that just keeps expanding and becoming more and more of a, an entire universe within this building. At that point, even though a crime has been committed and he's searching for a missing wife and like the box manager's character who thinks he's a horse or maybe a horse, he is definitely just kind of passed into a whole new pasture of surrealism and narrative experimentation. He would kind of repeat that with the Ark Sakura from 1984, but with Secret Rendezvous, I think it was from going from Ruin Map Boxman to Secret Rendezvous, that's that's the climb, you know, where he's taking yeah. these kind of traditional narratives and then by the end, it's just something that you've never seen before. Yeah, somebody, I was saying to you, actually, another author that when I was mentioning his influences, I don't, I don't think it's an influence because they're contemporaneous, but Italic Calvino is another yes. author that his work really reminds me of. And another one of my very favorite authors. Yeah, I, I would definitely compare him to Calvino before Kafka, honestly. Yeah, I think that that's, that he belongs more to that. And there's also another author, author that there's a fair amount of flavor of uh, is is another one of my favorites, Milan Kundera, certainly in like Book Door of Laughter and Forgetting, where she goes to the Isle of Children out of nowhere. And it goes from being a very grounded in reality, politically oriented book to a story about a completely surreal fairy tale-ish land, uh, sort of smoothly. This this book has that same sort of feeling and sort of philosophical digressions and and uh uh purely aesthetic digressions i love the way this book is written um another know, book it was compared to at the time which i think is pretty on the nose is malloy by sam samuel beckett which oh, also yeah. has a similar sort of uh, unreliable narr narration where you don't know if a character is alive if they're dead if this person is actually connected to these people but uh it takes a, does a similar trick where it takes a very intimate small story with just a few characters and turns it into this complete labyrinth of of worlds that you're discovering so i yeah. think that's another I, I i not super like that book but i would say more so than than kafka he definitely gets compared to beckett a lot you know what it was funny i was thinking too is this actually reminds me of murakami except legitimately mm -hmm. great and not just very good I know. I would, I, it would be. I would tell, call someone a liar to their face if they said Murakami was not hugely inspired by Abe. You know, I would yeah. take out a glove and slap them and challenge them to a duel, because um, obviously there's a huge amount of influence there. But this is this is just to talk about the writing. I wrote down in my own notes. I just wrote down so many sentences I liked from it. But a lot of the writing is. I braced myself, determined to break her with my own hands before she was broken by someone else. Before she, before she was broken by someone else, teeth sprouted on my upper and lower eyelids. At the wild idea of nibbling at her, my eyeballs flushed hot and I got erections. Like, and this is, this is like just suddenly it's in a scene. I'll just throw out one other quote too that I love. Just as an example of this kind of writing, perhaps it is I who am going on writing as I imagine you are writing as you imagine me. There's so much... <laughs> There's so much good stuff in it. The basic story is this. There's, there's four sections that are labeled the case of A, the case of B, the case of C, and the case of D, right? And the case of A describes a regular guy who's like a businessman. No, he's the photographer, right? Uh, indeterminate job. He seems like a regular middle-class guy. And a box man starts living outside his window 
where he can only see the Boxman. And in this section, it purports that Boxmen are a phenomenon. You know all about them. Boxmen. They're not homeless people or vagrants. Do not be confused with homeless people and vagrants. In fact, vagrants hate boxmen. They're natural enemies. It's a man who lives inside a box. And this is how you make a box to become a boxman. You make like a little lace thing for your weight. You wear boots. And he describes in detail. And so he says, this middle-class guy saw a boxman living outside the window in his apartment and couldn't figure out what to do about the guy. The other neighbors couldn't see it because of the angle. So one day he opened his window and shot it with an air rifle and the box got up and ran away. Right. And from there, he was compelled to put on a box and become a box man himself. Right. Mm-hmm. First, uh, slowly sitting in the box, watching TV and then sleeping in the box and finally just abandoning his house and going off into journey as a box man. But the box man sitting under the bridge writes this story as though it's a story that happened to someone else. So you're unsure if the story is, I was the box man who got shot by the air rifle. I am a box man living under the bridge. Because then the next thing that happens is the box man under the bridge, who is quote unquote writing the story, gets shot by an air rifle, right? And from there, he has to go up to the hospital at the top of the hill. There's this beautiful nurse working there that he's seen before. He gets treated for his wound. He's not wearing his box. And the nurse says to him, hey, you know the box man. And he's like, yeah, I'm pals with the box man, who definitely isn't me. And she says, I will pay you 50,000 yen to destroy the box that the box man is living in to destroy the box and tear it up. So a lot of the first section of the book is then this guy sitting under the bridge, waiting for her to come and bring the money. He's convinced that it's a most dangerous game type of situation where the doctor she's friends with, who's the one who shot him with the air rifle, probably, right? We have photographic evidence. He was a photographer and took a photo of him at the beginning and he goes through it, is now going to come and kill him and has sort of lured him there for the 50,000 yen because 50,000 yen is too much for a box. And it goes from she wants to buy the box to she wants him to destroy the box, right? Mm-hmm. Next, what happens is he goes up to the hospital. He sneaks out in his box in the courtyard. He's bothered by a hungry dog who is, wants to be his friend and he has to get the dog away from him by punching a hole in a tin of beef and throwing it away. And the dog's sort of trying to get into it. It can smell the beef and taste the juices and can't get in. And now he lifts up his car's rear view mirror, which he had held on to, puts it to the window of the nurse's room and sees her taking off her clothes for a man dressed in a box sitting in her bedroom, right? The dog- The fake box man. The fake box man. Yes. And there is there is a lot of difference between a box man and a fake box man is what we need to be clear about. But the dog comes over right as she's taken off her clothes and gotten all fours. Right. And it's it's getting to the moment. Dog comes over. Dog bothers him. And one of the best things is he has no sense of time. So when he's like, I can do that in 30 seconds, a minute at most, maybe five minutes. I think it was under an hour. Right? Like that's the Kyle <laughs> time sort of flows in this. He looks back. The woman is completely dressed. She's got a uh, used enema tube that's just been used. And he's missed the whole show of her giving herself an enema for the fake box man on all fours. Right? The next major section of the book is basically him, the nurse, and the doctor, right? Who wants to become a box man himself 
having a conversation about what they're doing and why and what their motivations for everything are, right? And, and this is the longest section of the book. It's like an 80-page chapter yeah. between these three characters. The sections have a tendency to be very short, like three or four pages, 10 pages kind of thing, and jump around a lot, move through time, right? As you go on, you don't have any sense of if it was the doctor as the fake box man, if it was him looking at himself, right, as the fake box man demanding that she be given an enema. All of the discussion confuses about who was actually doing what and what was happening in his imagination or not in his imagination. You don't know if it was him imagining looking at himself because we sort of are determined that voyeurism is his favorite thing, right? So the imagination, he wants to be being viewed watching her doing that if it really was the doctor, if it wasn't the doctor. And then the next wrinkle is, is there's a signed sworn affidavit by the doctor about who the box man really is, right, John? About mm -hmm. who this guy really is. And it's set up because it's halfway through the book and it's very funny because it's like, here's going to be the whole story. And it gets even more convoluted and hard to follow from here. Not hard to follow, but intentionally playing games from here. The box man, right? The doctor is not really a doctor. During World War II, he was the assistant of a great doctor. And that great doctor just had too many patients and started getting addicted to drugs. So he had the assistant start to do surgeries for him. Then after the war, the doctor had no interest in being a doctor like Abe himself. So he had the assistant pretend to be him and take over his name and his personality, including being married to his wife, who was his nurse. And they formed a little hospital together and he turned out to be a good surgeon. So he continued being a surgeon and the doctor became a box man, a crazy drug addict who started living in a box, right? And at some point, he's writing this affidavit because he realized he completely wants to take over the doctor's personality. So he's going to kill the doctor by giving him an overdose, putting seawater in his lungs and throwing him down in the whirlpool riptide below the bridge where the original box man was sitting. And this is what's going to happen. And then it starts going to, then the perspective, perspective switches to the box man writing you and I. It goes into second person where the box man under the bridge who may or may not be a doctor who doesn't exist, who may or may not be two different doctors or one doctor. He may be the boyfriend of the nurse. There might not be a difference between the fake box man and the real box man. They both might be the doctor. They both might be two doctors. There might be a third guy. There might be another one who's a photographer, right? You're not sure about any of this at all within it, but one of them is you now when he talks about, and one of them is I, the I who is the real box man and the you who is the fake box man, who is potentially the fake doctor, who is also potentially a real doctor, who is also potentially the same as the initial box man, right? Did I lay that down correctly enough? It's close enough, I would say, compared and, you know, and to how this book is written. And I would say that the final uh, section that is worth mentioning is the case of D, where it talks about a child who is a child pervert who realizes he likes looking at people without being seen. He like jams himself between a wall and a uh, shed right? And he can kind of realize as he can see without being seen. So he builds a cardboard contraption with a mirror in it. That's essentially a periscope that he can put over walls and stuff. And he realizes, hey, you know what this contraction would be great for, John? What this contraption would be great for? What would it be great for, John? Every 11-year-old um, kid's fantasy. Uh, seeing a woman go to the toilet. 
Yes, seeing his next door neighbor, who's a gym teacher and gymnast, who's an expert piano player, plays Chopin, watching her pee by sneaking it under a little hole in the wall. And what happens when he does this, John? Well, he gets caught and the woman forces him to come inside and strip naked while she watches him through the peephole of the bathroom door. So he has become the one who is now being watched in a, within a box. Yeah, and he gets, he gets a boner. That's for sure. <laughs> and this is a story that it's very hard to tell. It's written in a great way where it's intentionally written like a bit of like a penthouse letters like, I didn't, you know, these two stewardesses were twins, where it starts out sounding like a real thing that may have happened. And then his own fantasy of what he would have liked to have happened in his childhood overtakes it at some point, you know, that it becomes more and more like the overheated fantasy of a genuine pervert. This book is genuinely perverted in a way that I find marvelous. You know, it's got, you know, as we've already mentioned, bathroom peepings, enema syringes, uh, there's a lot of discussion of whether putting a penis hole in your box makes you a fake or a real box man and how perverted it is. There's great descriptions of, of the body too, like when the nurse takes her panties off of like being able to see the line from it on her hip because of where it was tight. It's, it's, and it's also incredibly gross because the box man is gross and living in filth. Uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful, John. I the love nakedness, the nakedness under the white garment gave the feeling of a nakedness stripped more naked than ordinary. Yes. And you also, there's this great section talking about how when you're naked, it's not as arousing as when you're half clothed because it's the emphasis on that this is being revealed and that you're sort of being degraded by your clothing still attempting to hide increases the sensation of seeing something hidden. Which is very Toby Hooper-esque of that. Yes, it is indeed. It is indeed. Um, the chapter titles in this book are also something we should talk about. One of yeah, them let me just tell you my favorite one. Yeah. It's the longest one that we were mentioning, um, in which it is a question of the sullen relationship between the I who am writing and the I who am being written about. So here are my, my two favorites are back to back. One of them is it's like he's getting to, okay, now I'm going to explain what was happening. It's a dialogue scene. And then the next chapter, it suddenly ends and the next chapter is called, then I dozed off a number of times. Right when he's like, dreamed of fish. <laughs> and he dreamed of fish. The shellwood fish, shellwood, uh, shellweed fish sequence is amazing. That's my favorite sequence in the book. And then the chapter immediately after that is the promise is fulfilled in a letter with 50,000 yen covering the cost of the box was dropped from the bridge at the top. This was barely five minutes ago. I attached the letter herewith. That's the name of the next chapter. Uh, it does have it does have these long, almost picaresque titles. You know, like that's a chapter you'd encounter in mm. in something like Gargantua and Pantagruel. You know, yeah. these these sort of long, overly explanatory titles that you have in. Uh, in which blah, blah goes to blah, blah and means blah, blah behind the blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. In which in which the seductress is made a fool at the hand of Tom at the top of the morning. You know, that right. kind of thing. Yes, yes. Um, and so should we talk about the fish dream sequence? Yeah, I love that sequence. Obviously, it's the quote that I opened it up with. <laughs> I just, I'm still kind of working out in my head, you know, how he differentiates boxmen, fake boxmen, animals, other human beings, 
he has this whole philosophy of what a person is, what their stature is in the world. And the fish dream gives no help to understand <laughs> what exactly his definition of a box man is. Well, it's also funny because it's a play on, he starts out doing the, uh, you know, I was, I was a philosopher who dreamed I was a butterfly. And when I awoke, I, I was no longer sure if I was a butterfly dreaming I was a philosopher. It starts to be like that, but then it takes it further and further, which is that um, there's this shell wheat, right? Down under the bridge near the riptide in the whirlpools. And he starts off talking about if you smell the shell weed, it has a chemical hallucinogenic effect on you that causes you to have these crazy dreams where you're a fish and time will start to function differently. And if you start thinking you're a fish, the surest thing you could do to be like, oh, no, I'm not a fish. This is a dream is pinch your hand. But of course, fish don't have hands. So there's nothing you can do about the shellweed fish dream. You're trapped like this. <laughs> and the only thing you can do next is to try and run and jump off a cliff and wake up before you hit the ground. But of course, fish can't fall and die from a fall off a cliff. They can't go to cliffs at all. So fish then you've got fall. to hope that you're flung into the air by a massive tidal wave and drown and suffocate in the air as a fish in the air, but you need time to slow down for that happen because there's not enough time for a fish to suffocate merely when it's flown. So you've got to be hurtled into space. But if time is slowing down, then you're stuck as this fish within the shell we dream for possibly an all eternity. Even though you know you're a person dreaming you're a fish, you'll be there so long that you'll lose any difference between the sense of being a fish and being a human in any sense of time, your entire identity will be annihilated by eternity. And I'm really, I'm really sorry. So try not to smell the shell weed. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful summation. And it's, and it's wonderful because it takes that game, that pseudo profundity of like, I dreamed I was a butterfly. And when I woke, I didn't know if I was a butterfly and, and takes it, a billion times further and makes it more terrifying, makes it a more complete statement about you can know you're a fake, right? Like the doctor or the fake box man, but you can be trapped so long being a fake that you become this thing, even though you're constantly aware that you're a fake and it's a put on and you have the shell and you're not really a box and you're actually a person, you can wear it long enough that you become trapped in this sense of a fake identity, but that doesn't mean become it's a real identity or confusing identity. Your real identity is fake now, right? Which is basically the theme of, of the book uh, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's just funny. I think you're getting a sense of listening to us of just how fucking funny this book is. And again, like Kafka or Milan Kudera, Tala Calvino, these are really funny. These are really, really funny authors and they're not jokey authors. Uh, and they're not, they're also not trying to be weird authors. Like I was just, um, uh, thinking about Paul Auster today and mm -hmm. when like, or Philip Roth, when they try to be weird, how like awful it is, you know? Mm. And this is like the opposite of that. This is like weirdness in its bones. Uh, I think comparing it, I was going to say that, that I think actually the easiest comparison, this compares to like strange tales, you know, this compares to weird fiction, you know, that, that genre of fiction of strange tales, weird tales, the sort of thing that I think most audiences would know um, from uh, uh, like HP Lovecraft or like EC comics type stuff, you know, uh, that this compares to that 
uh, in sort of its approach to weirdness. It's not weirdness grafted onto it. It's weirdness. If, if you dig up the weirdness, there's blood. nothing out there. Yeah. <laughs> if you remove the radish sprout, there is no longer a person, right? Just to <laughs> reference one of his early books. Um, yeah, there's a lot of humor. In fact, uh, everything where he talks about the idea of a box being all you need to live in the world, that you can put everything you need in there and everything will be at your fingertips. And then how a woman would actually want that box for some reason, want to pay you 50,000 yen for this box. Makes me think of the Dave Chappelle joke. If a man could fuck a woman in a cardboard box, he wouldn't buy a house. (laughs) (laughs) It has a kind of a really funny view of just modern living and material possessions and things like that. And for, for a minute, I thought, when going into this book that it was going to be largely almost like a, um, a Shinya Tsukamoto sort of thing where it's talking yeah. about life in the city and becoming enveloped in the city and things like that, but it actually goes off and becomes something completely different from that. I think he's only interested in that idea to kind of set up the idea of what a box man is and having this idea that I'm, you know, I'm better than vagrants and, and derelicts. You know, those guys actually try to beat me up all the time that it's uh, not so much a philosophy of living in the modern world and surviving the modern world and more one of trying to suppress your identity to the moment where if you become a fish, it's okay. Because or terrifying. Or terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, and it is, it is, Tsukamoto's an interesting comparison if only to show differences because I think that I would, I would imagine Tsukamoto is influenced by him in some way, but doing his own thing. And I, I did too. When yeah. you read the case of A and it's about the middle-class guy who decides to become a box man, I thought it was going to be a much simpler story about modern alienation and, you know, sort of the alienation of identity in this. But the, the backdrop doesn't matter at all. It's almost completely abstract. It's an interior space. And I suppose those themes are there, but there's something far more like ancient you could, feeling you, about you, this. It's a little bit yeah. like saying Alice in Wonderland is about modern alienation. Like, I, I guess <laughs> you could find that somewhere in there, you know? No, it's so sparse. This is the kind of thing that if you adapted it, it should be as a play where the only problem is the box. You know, I can't even imagine you need a setting for this because so much of it is interior and so much of it is not going into long paragraphs about the surroundings or the bridge or anything like that. It's more like make sure you line your box properly with this exact amount of tape so that the rain doesn't get in through there and then, you know, you get into trouble or having how to use a bathroom as a box man. I think like the box, you know, confining this character in here, this story confines the characters in a very limited space that I think allows him to kind of go off and do these weird tangents and things like that, because we don't have to worry about remembering what's going on in the plot. We can completely disregard the setting in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. One thing I should also say is there's authors like um, Thomas Pynchon that to me, those books are create their obfuscation by being bloated and having constant red herrings and trying to lead you away from the plot constantly, just adding all of this material on top of it to achieve a density, right? That you just have constant new threads added and don't explain the relationship of the threads to each other and keep putting them in and to give the audience the impression, the reader the impression that they've got to sort through all of this to find the meaning, to find the thread that matters. 
This is the opposite of that. This is an incredibly lean, short novel. This is like 178 pages in the version I have, right? Yeah, and it's, absolutely. It reminds me of the Johnny Cash quote, you know, where they say, why do you do the simple guitar lick on all your songs? Why don't you do some showy guitar work like everyone else? And he says, they're looking for it, and I found it. I think that Avi found it. <laughs> it doesn't need to do a lot of convoluted stuff to yes. make this uh, insanely crazy novel. I feel like if you read Gravity's Rainbow and then this back to back, your your feeling would be that he's looking for it. Abe found it, you know, yeah. and and there's actually an Abe quote that I really love, which is rather than putting everything I know into a novel, I try to eliminate everything that is not indispensable. It is all a process of erasure, an expression of only the necessary, not of loose memories and thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's great because you hear that quote and you go, that's exactly right. Is there is no, there is no mislaid word in this book. There's very few books I would say that about, you know, I always think about the Milan Kundera quote of like, uh, certainly, you know, a sentence here and there in remembrance of things past could stand to be improved, but what kind of a madman wants to read an improved Proust, right? Every book mm-hmm. could be like changed or made clear. This book, I feel like a poem, like, don't touch it. Like, do not fucking touch it. It's done. You know, like this is everything is arranged graphically the way it's arranged. I imagine that these page breaks and where the photos go and how the chapter breaks work and the different font sizes and the lettering is all very carefully dictated by him. I I would imagine that. Did you find anything about the photographs? I was wondering if they were taken by him or what the story behind those were. Did Nothing. he actually go out into the street and become a box man and take pictures from his box? That's what I'd like to believe. And I think it's what they want you to believe. You know? Yes. I, but I it, was not able to find anything. I was not either. The only one that seems super staged is the initial photo of the quote unquote doctor with the air rifle running away next to the wall to the soy sauce factory. That's, that's the, the only, only one, one that specifically, yeah. Yeah, and the rest look like he could have just gone out and, uh, and found things. And I don't know anything about it. And just to give you a sense of these, each photograph takes up an entire page. It's got a black border around it. The photographs themselves are generally squarish and taking up half the page. Uh, And then they have little epigrams. And my favorite one is this, is you're reading all about um, what's happening with the fish, right? This is in the fish sequence. And because the initial photo at the very front of the doctor running away has been set up as evidence, I believe this is the second photo in the book. So you're expecting it to be more evidence to make more sense of what you're reading. And so he's talking about the fish and then suddenly there's this wall of a photo that stops the fish and it's of a like little uh, sort of snack stand looking thing right? With maybe in the distance, a wall behind it, but it's not clear or fence. And it says, if you intend to proceed beyond here, you have either, you either have to go over the fence or around it to the right or left. Since this area is in the middle, whichever way you go around, it takes the same amount of time. When walking, it usually takes a day and a half, but if you rest on the way, it takes more. And it's so, it's so great because it, the first, if you intend to, if you intend to proceed beyond here, you either have to go around the fence to the left or right. Like, and it feels like, okay, 30 pages in, you're reading about the fish stream. If you intend to go beyond here, it's going to be work, right? <laughs> if you just, I'm telling you, if you intend to go beyond here, it's a long walk and you're going to have to do the walk. I also love the logic of it. It's like, it only takes a day and a half. 
unless you stop to rest and don't walk 36 hours straight, you know, that's like the <laughs> box man's sense of time on all of this is just so fucking great. It's just great. And it's really funny. And it gives you things to consider what you're being told and how to consider them too. You know, the part that made me laugh the most is when he decides to have a physical fight confrontation with the fake box man, but he has to attack his vault, his open areas, like his knees and his feet. He doesn't <laughs> want to damage the box. <laughs> so he's kicking his shins and he like <laughs> retreats up onto the, like the doctor's table bed kind of thing. Yeah. It's great. You know what I also hear, Chris? I hear that uh, the box is indeed a dangerous source of blue. Oh my God. All of the talk about blue is so great. He, there's a late section where he lays his head down on a desk, right? The doctor does and is just sort of like thinking about things. And he notices the glass he has on the writing desk has a blue color. And it's just like this extended meditation on the color blue and just how dangerous it is. You just don't want that blue in your life. Yeah, you don't often stop to think how terrifying blue is. I, of course, I think right away of In the Mouth of Madness. Did I ever tell you my favorite color is blue and then the whole world is blue? Blue <laughs> could be a very terrifying color. I totally got what he was going for. With that. It is. And it's, and it's beyond red is an unnatural color. Red is the color of aggression and blood. Blue is like the sky is blue and the ocean is blue and giant yawning voids of eternity are blue. And you're just going to fall into them. Unless you get your head off of this desk, you're just going to fall into the void of eternity, my man. And it's blue in there. Watch out. <laughs> Chris Funderburg's woeful eyes are blue. <laughs> my baby blues. Um, John, can I tell you what my problem in, in life is? Please. When I read this book, my immediate response is, God damn, I should be a box man. You believe that enlightened society is a kind of trouser society? I do. That's that's the funniest part of the book. We'll talk about that in a second, <laughs> about trouser society, which, by the way, we're changing the name of the Pink Smoke podcast and website to the trouser society. From here on out, we're the trouser society. But I read this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll live in a box. I've got some vinyl. I've got a few things. I also love the 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 jerk joke, which is this predates the jerk, but where he's like, you only need to bring essentials, like your like some toiletries and a thing to write on, and some old newspaper, possibly a magazine, some trousers for your head, a small portable radio. Look, you might be able to justify having things like a bike tire and a rear view mirror and just this incredible list of like, but only the essentials, you know? Yep. Okay, so do you want to escape to be a box man because of your obsession with the news? Is that the reason? No, it's just this is in high school. You want to I... watch you want to watch the news because you don't want to miss the end of the world being reported. No, when I read Bartleby the Scrivener in high school, I was like, ah shit, that's what's gonna happen to me. Ah fuck. I am exactly like Bartleby the Scrivener. I'm gonna get some job I hate. And at some point I'm just gonna stop doing it. And they're like, why are you gonna? Stop doing your job. And I'm like, I would just, I would prefer not to. You're going to eat. You're going to walk. You're going to do anything. You're going to lay down and die in the tombs. I'd prefer not to. You know, it's the same thing mm -hmm. with the box man where it's like, I don't want to be a photographer. I don't want to be a doctor. That would be great. Standing here by this whirlpool, wiping myself down in a bathhouse by the ocean, waiting for my underwear to dry. Now, John, explained it you didn't want to become a box man during that first chapter you didn't have the slightest <laughs> impulse to become a box man 
maybe I tried it and it didn't work out for me. I think you're a fake box man. I, I don't I, think I, I am definitely a fake box man. I was definitely. I don't I'm think, a poser. I don't think you have any desire at all to peep on women using the bathroom, John. I'm I'm beginning to believe that there's a wide gulf between. <laughs> no, me but and I want them to think that I do. I'm definitely the guy sitting across from the woman and kind of shaming the real box man for his earnest desires because I know all about him, but I am not him. Um, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it, John. Tell me about Trouser Society. What, what about Trouser Society? How, why is Enlightened Society a kind of Trouser Society, John? Well, because they're legit, right? Pants are legit. You go out and you're wearing pants, people accept you. If you go out without pants, what happens? They you, put you away. They don't want to do it. They shun you. You can go outside. There's a power with, in the trousers. Without I a say that, but I'm throwing that out there. Without a shirt, without shoes, without socks. So long as you're wearing trousers, people will be like, well, that's a guy, you know? That's, that's a That's a guy. I'm not, I don't necessarily love this, or maybe it's appropriate. Maybe it's not. If you go out wearing socks and a shirt, but no trousers, no underwear, no matter how get... new your shoes, how <laughs> elegant your coat, it's exactly. enough to raise a big hue and cry. You could be totally rocking the full Scrooge McDuck and you will go to jail. You can be wearing the top hat and the overcoat and the boots, but no pants. That's the Scrooge <laughs> and McDuck. The spats. Don't forget the spats. And the spats, but you will get thrown in prison immediately. People will run away in horror. That is how enlightened society is kind of a trouser society. And that line of thinking comes from a really great, uh, another nightmare stream he's having where it was that a bunch of kids are having to parade with his trousers as a flag. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> oh my goodness. Everybody read this book. I can't. So you got to tell me, cause this is the first one I read. I thought this is some David Goodis, Ed McBain motherfucker that I don't have to give a shit about. What do I got to read next? I was going to read uh, ruined map next because I love man yeah. without a map movie so much. Yeah, definitely read Ruined Map next, I would say. Okay, and then and then Secret Rendezvous as sort of... Yeah, save that one thing. for last because these two really combine into that book. You know, they really kind of... Everything great about those books forms the nexus of that last one, which is just incredible. Okay. This is a book where I feel like uh, I, I need to know more about the author. Normally, I have a critique when we're talking about things about connecting it to the larger world, to larger types of art, things that could be good, things that could be bad, themes that I've noticed in the in their artwork. All I can say about this one is that this is just so uniformly excellent. I, It's been a really long time since I've been blown away by an author. We read a lot of books for this podcast that are crime fiction that I read that are very like take it or leave it stuff for me that I'm like I'm glad I read but is Colonel Woolrich a good author no he's a fucking terrible author you know and those books have their value and their interest but like as an author he's not any good at somebody who writes words together and there's a lot of books we read that I like or dislike uh, to some extent I'll, I'll enjoy a book like Pet Cemetery, but not come away like wow I've read something incredible you know oh and, for sure he's the real deal I mean, this is this is the real stuff right here. And it's good because I originally wanted to read Inner Eyes 4 as sort of a science fiction kind of thing that we could tackle. And it was your decision to change it over to the Boxman since you hadn't read it. And I'm really glad you decided to do that because this book really just rewards every reading. And it's like you said, it's short, but it is a long read. 
because you will constantly want to go back and reread paragraphs and make sure you understood what he said. That sounds like it's a slog, but it's not. It's like you will love to reread paragraphs. I, I read it. I read it twice and I partly read it twice because we were all set to do it right before I was hospitalized with the pulmonary emboli and the, the deep vein thrombosis, which knocked me out of commission. And so I wanted to go back and reread it, but it's been, but I was so excited to reread it. And it's been so long since I've essentially just read a book twice in a row. That happened a lot when I was like college age where like I finished Shock Le Fate at least or um, uh, Laughable Loves, you know, and reread them immediately. You know, like that's the, I don't pick up a new book. I go back and read it again right after I'm done reading it. It's been so long since I've done that. And I've got to say, I, I never expected to at age 42, maybe sort of cynically and self-importantly with the amount I've read and what I'm familiar with to find a new favorite author at this age. I just did not expect to meet one of my favorite authors for the first time at age 42, you know? And I even say one of my favorite authors after one book, it's, it's rare to be so certain about an author after a single book like I am with this, you know, that, that hasn't happened since Herman Brock, where uh, I read Sleepwalkers and I was like, great, one of my favorite authors, there you go. You know, I, I will read the rest of this and it sort of doesn't matter what the rest of it is. He's one of my favorites now. And I don't even need like the guilt list to, to make me go absolute favorite you know, kind of thing that I just, I read the one I'm like, great. All the others could be trash. This one's good enough that this guy is one of my favorites from here on out. I'm so glad you liked it, man. And I'm, you know, you're absolutely right. When you see uh, the Tishigura films, Tishikahara films, and, and you say, you know, these are improvements upon something that was simple, you know, and pulpy. You don't really know this author at all until you read these books, which isn't true of a lot of authors whose stuff you see put to the big screen. Usually there's a uh, some kind of a medium point where they, it meets the two artworks meet each other and you get a good impression of that original uh, artwork but with Abe to read Woman in the Dunes as opposed to seeing the movie is two completely different experiences it really is yeah and Teshigahara is an incredibly stylish and stylistic filmmaker which also creates the impression that he's he's taken something not as stylish as him and is in 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 uh, applied this incredible style to it. But the opposite is true. This book is more stylish than any of Teshigahara's films. And again, Teshigahara is one of my favorites. This is no slight to Teshigahara to say he's only as good as Truffaut. You know, like that's that's no slight to him whatsoever. Um, but this this really just uh, just felt like I can't I can't believe I'm discovering something I love this much. This this it's been it's got to have been 15 years since I've, I've discovered a novelist that I love this much, you know, and, and maybe, you know, there's been people who have been slow burns for me, like Patricia Highsmith very slowly became one of my favorite novelists. Uh, and that definitely happened over the course of, of a long time, but just to from out the gate, just be blown away by it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. That's amazing. Where did where did you come across him first? How long have you how come you never recommended him to me? You're normally good at telling me to I read the great stuff. You knew him. I guess I thought you were aware of him. Yeah. Uh, just because I assumed you would. You're Chris. Well, so I'm aware of him. I'm aware yeah. of him, but I just I misunderstood. Anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, it came from, you know, early Japanese movie watching from high school and everything. I followed it to his novels and yeah, so it's been a while, but I revisiting the box man after a while, I think I'm reinvigorated by him now. You know, yeah. I, he's one of the authors who you do the you do the you do the cycle of the books and you think, okay, I got it, it's in here. But uh, that's not true. You go back and then you rediscover it again and it's completely different, it's completely new. I will so, say something too. Read some more of his books. That that let me let me because the theme is sentimentality of all of the most recent books. You don't write any fiction anymore. You don't write scripts anymore, or certainly don't share them with me. And I, if you're not sharing them with me, I don't know who the fuck you're sharing them with. This book reminds me of your work. This book is John Cribsey, is what I would say. And reading it made me go, I wish John would write again. I wish John hadn't given up and decided he's Patterson and he's just going to write his poems while he drives the bus for himself, right? That he just writes in a notebook for nobody in the hospital, which I know is mentally what you did, John. I, I understand exactly what you did, but it, it makes me go this, this. Chris, what I did was I turned into an apparition who was neither man nor box. That's what I did. I think that's true. And I wish you hadn't. <laughs> I think you, I wish you hadn't. It's maddening. Um, yeah, but it is, there is something that I also was like, oh yeah, I remember this book also reminds me of being like young and writing with John Cribbs and being much less polished and maybe boring of a writer than I am now and actually like adventurous and attempting to do something overwhelming and excessive. I don't think obviously you ever did anything as good as uh as abe but i think that's what you were after and it was sort of a reminder like oh yeah john john used to be on to something i wish he'd go back to it so that is me in public on on the record saying that uh uh don't just don't just drive the bus man don't do it twerps too coming your way man <laughs> <laughs> oh twerps not your clerk's knockoff i meant more season in the drain <laughs> you know the gory allegory my favorite of those <laughs> um uh what else so i guess should we move on to desserts here john is there more you wanted to say about the book i would i am very curious to know what you would possibly pair with this as, as a dessert after you finish this book and lay it down what you say now go check this out uh i i like my pairing for this which is um maybe a little counterintuitive but the photos of arthur felig aka ouija who did oh, okay. like mm -hmm. who did like um, crime scene underworld photos in the 30s and 40s? He was definitely somebody who, if there was going to be a photo taken either of a box man or a doctor fleeing with an air rifle, Ouija would have gotten the photo for it. He's a he's a very I don't I never he's one of those characters who's like so big uh in certain circles that i assume everybody knows who ouija is and to to check out his his monographs he's sort of you know one of the the most famous photographers of all time in some ways but i also know you know there's dividing lines between disciplines so a lot of people have never even heard his name before this moment and uh it's just he filmed uh, you know, like actual scenes of like death and injury. He filmed, uh, you know, prostitutes and uh, police officers that had been shot. He filmed vagrants and alcoholics. He filmed all manner of sort of like 
subway depravity. And there's something about his work that I think would be interesting after you read this novel to place this book in a real world context and imagine mm. the box man existing in this world that's been rendered abstract, you know, is what I think would be an interesting pairing to do with this. That's one of the nice things about the book kind of foregoing the background because you can kind of put your own background into it. Yes. Yes. And uh, I, I agree with, I agree with that. It makes it timeless. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's taking place in 73. It feels like it's taking place anytime a country after a war, you know, that yeah. at some until point. We, until we as the species move past our need for bo cardboard boxes, it's going to be relevant. <laughs> it's funny that you say Ouija is super well known because I had specifically asked Jordan and my wife, you know, who are some street photographers and neither of us landed on Ouija, although we both What did you say? Work. Did you say Brassai? Yeah, yeah, we said everybody, but Ouija, I think. It's uh, just, just never found it. But yeah, that's a great pairing. Uh, what I got from her instead were two were, uh, marriages of performance art and display art. One is by Cornelia Parker, which I think is called The Maybe, but I'm not 100% sure. But she had Tilda Swinton sleep in a glass box for people to come and look at. So imagine Tilda Swinton in the world of the box, man. This might be what it looked like, although she looks a little more like Snow White. Uh, another one is uh, Marina uh, Abramovic, who had her famous um, The Artist is Present uh, in 2010, which was, of course, documented yeah. in the film, which is her just sitting at a table uh, looking at somebody across the way, the two of them observing each other. And, of course, that works into this theme that Abby obviously is interested in of uh, the reason men somehow go on living and during the gaze of others is that they, be they bargain on the hallucinations and an exactitude of human eyes. Yeah, being represented, being going into someone's brain and being interpreted and made into something else, I think is something that terrifies the box man and has a lot of power to it. And obviously, uh, Marina Abramovic has a lot of power in her very simple but very profound sort of performance piece. But yeah, yes, and they're oh, both about yeah. they're they're both about that's a great selection because they're both about how the very act of being seen creates your identity and that your identity is inflicted on you in some ways that that the audience is present that what it, the audience is doing is creating her artist's identity in a very palpable real way with that and absolutely. with the box man absolutely but i'm not making this my official selection okay i'm sticking with my original uh selection which is two bad jokes chris if you're ready i'm two ready bad box based jokes you ready oh <laughs> okay God, so i can't wait so I asked a homeless girl if I could take her home. The smile on her face vanished when I walked away with her cardboard box. <laughs> That's the one because it's a cardboard box I decided to go. It's not the one I really like. The one I really like, this is my favorite. This one I can't believe I've never heard before because I love it. It's one of my new favorite jokes. What's worse than a box of snakes? A box, man? A box that was supposed to be full of snakes. <laughs> that's a that's a great joke i that's love an, that joke that's an a plus joke that one is getting uh, heard by parker and my dad as soon as we're done recording <laughs> as soon as we're done recording i mean i i you know there's a lot that this is a really dense book even just sitting here i'm like oh there's a lot we didn't really talk about you know just how much this book is about sexual desire and tying 
the act of being seen versus, you know, voyeurism and exhibitionism together and exploring those things. This book is obviously heavily on the side of voyeurism, although there's uh, in the mindset of voyeurism, not in favor of voyeurism. Right. Although there's sure. a lengthy section where the boxman, whoever he may be, is speculating about the appeal of exhibitionism, which is, again, a similar desire to be unrepressed by expectation, to be seen as you are and force people to look at you, right? And force people to see who you are and how it's actually humiliating for people to have to see you for real, right? Yeah, yeah. And as that- usual, Chris, when we dig into a book like this, I have so many new I've taken so much more, I've dug dug so much further into it, and I'm gonna I want to go read it again right away. It makes me very excited to discuss these books with you. I I know it's I'm super psyched, and uh, you know, and and I was getting, you know, it's funny because I was talking to uh, uh, Wendy Mays about uh, the new Fast and the Furious, right? She's a huge Fast and the Furious fan, and I was like, you know, I I nobody was a bigger advocate of those movies earlier on than us. You can go back to our website. And Fast and the Furious 3 were like, this is the franchise for all time. Everybody get ready. There's something special here happening. We're so far ahead of the curve on those movies, right? There there was no one who was advocating uh, for them before us. And Paul Walker's gorgeous baby blues and his abs. Nobody, nobody loved Paul Walker more than us. No one loved human beauty more than us. And, uh, And I was saying that I went and saw the eighth one in the theater. Did I see that with you? Don't remember. I saw it. I saw it with a big group of people and I saw it in the theater and about halfway through, I was like, ah, oh, this shit is too loud. This is just like loud and annoying. I was like an old man all of a sudden who was like, I'm just too old for this nonsense. This is just nonsense. And it's loud and annoying. I want to go like with my mom and watch steel magnolias. That was like my mindset. I transformed into every mom who doesn't want to go see Fast and the Furious 8 right then and there. And I have that with a lot of art where I'm like, I'm just too old for this shit now and I don't care. And it's too old to discover. There's filmmakers that are like, that's interesting, but I'm just I'm just not going to become, you know, a whoever super fan at age 40. You know what I mean? Where you're like, that's perfectly good. And I like that. And if I had seen this when I was even 25 or 28, it really would have meant something to me. But just like, I'm not going to get really into Hal Ashby at age 40. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, it passed me by. And so that's why- And now Abe is your Tokyo Drift. It's so thrilling to be excited for an artwork. It's so thrilling. I'm not saying I didn't think it was possible- but I didn't think it was possible for, for an established artist. There's new artists that I see all the time that are creating current works and building their reputation, that are creating current works and building their reputation that are new, you know, like uh, uh, Lucille Hadzilosevich or, or my very favorite, Lucretia Martel. These are filmmakers who are young in their careers in a lot of ways, who are on the way to creating movies. I'm incredibly excited to see what they do. But somebody whose career is over, it's hard to get excited for the old stuff you know, or not hard. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't think it was possible to like a book as much as I like this fucking book. I just didn't think it was possible anymore. 
well, as much as you, you know, try not to, when we get to be our age, you start thinking about how much time we got left and do I have time to invest in this artist and this artwork, especially something that, you know, there is a body of art and you're like, do I go back and read all this stuff? Is it too late? Should I just say, well, I had my shot with Kobo Abe, but now that moment's passed, you know? Yeah. You really got, you, you, unfortunately you have to kind of weigh some things like, what do I have time to get into? Yeah. And I'd say there's a lot of like moderately interesting art that exactly what you're saying. Like, I just don't, I don't have time to be really into this thing. That's just okay. You know what I mean? That's, that's good. Even Mm -hmm. that's, that's very good maybe even, but it's just not, I'm just not going to get amped for it. Uh, And I'm not going to dig into it and try and try and find that, uh, that, that thing uh, that, that expands it. I'm not probably not going to have the slow burn with anybody the way I did with Highsmith, who's, you know, if I think, cause I was thinking about like, what are my 10 favorite novels and talented Mr. Ripley's in there for sure. For certain. That's one of my 10 favorite novels. And that was a slow burn, but am I going to have that where there's somebody I'm starting to read now? And then when I'm 55, one of their novels will be in my top 10. That seems unlikely to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm saving Eric Romare for my slow burn. I've got all of his movies sitting oh. on the shelf waiting for me to watch him. I just have not. He's the best. He's <laughs> the best. And he is a slow burn. There's no one that you're like, that's the masterpiece that's going to blow my mind up. It's more like you watch 20 of them. And at some point you realize you're, he's your favorite now. That's how Eric Romer works <laughs> for sure. Oh, man. We should watch one of them and do, a, and do an episode on one that I that I inflict on you in some way tell you because sure. i'm not because you know i'm not going to tell you see night at mods chloe in the afternoon these are not going to be the ones i tell you to see john <laughs> uh, okay i hope i'm not too wound up this is great man can I, can I leave you on this comment quote from the book absolutely Just to keep in mind in the world for everyone out there the more you struggle the more the box <laughs> it's absolutely true for me this is why I'm going to be a box man, John. And you're going to have to murder me. Got my air rifle locked and loaded. You're going to have to cut open my arm with a scalpel, inject me with morphine to kill me, take a bellows, pump salt water and seaweed into my lungs, sit on my lungs so I expel some, pump more in so it looked like I breathed it in and out, then drag me down to the whirlpool. Or now he knows way chapter. too much about how to fake a drought. <laughs> But then it's like, or another chapter. It's just, I love how that section ends. Like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And then it's like, well, you know, why am I writing this affidavit as though it happened in the past when I haven't done it yet? And you're like, you son of a bitch. (laughs) You wrote this. You had me convinced that this is what was actually happening. And now we got to jump to this is your imagination of the future. You got me, Abe. He does it so easy. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's never been so easy. Uh, John, have a good night. Thank you for talking about this book with me. Thank you, Chris. Because I'm a box man.